Good to see you. We're going to get straight into the Bible now. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Joel, and we have teaching here from the Bible at Emmanuel week by week. We're in the book of Samuel. We're getting towards the end of it. We're going through the last stages of the story of King David. Uh, the last part of his life is uh, a sad part. There are many tragic aspects to it, including uh, the, the rebellion of his beloved son, Absalom, um, he has the, the, the horror of watching his treasured son turn against him, um, not just uh, mildly or for, for, a, for a, a sort of season of rebellion, but murderously. Absalom turns on his dad and takes his position of authority in, in Jerusalem, sets himself up as the replacement king, and plans to have David even hunted down and killed. And so we've been looking in the last few weeks at this pretty poisonous section of David's story and brought it to a dramatic closure last week where we looked at how Joab, the, the leader of David's army, killed Absalom. Uh, there was this battle that went on while actually David was... Uh, kept away from the fight by his, his senior military leaders who said, look, you should not be in this battle. David sends them away, says, but please, please be careful about my son, Absalom. He says, be gentle with my son, with my boy. And, uh, and so there's this, this kind of carefully described episode in the forest where Absalom gets caught up in the tree as he's riding along on his donkey. His hair, which was something he was very proud of, his kind of glorious long hair, gets caught up in the tree. He's left dangling as his donkey carries on walking. And although it sounds kind of a bit farcical, it's, it's, it's brutal, it's gory, it's, it features Joab stabbing him and then a whole lot of other soldiers joining in the stabbing. And Absalom is put to death in a, in a particularly kind of gross way. And we're picking up the story from there. Uh, just to, seems like the sunny time of year, happy point in the May, kind of late spring, good time to talk about gory deaths and the subsequent events. No, I wanted to talk to you today uh, from this story, actually, about uh, how God brings pain into our lives sometimes and try to understand a bit better why he does, why he does this. Uh, why these horrible episodes can take place in our lives and some of the things we can learn from that for our own profit so that we can grow, so that we can be stronger by God's grace, by God's help. So let's read. I'm going to read to you. It's a bit of a long story again, but, but follow me on this and you, I, I think you'll find it fascinating. This is from chapter 18, verse 19, right up to chapter 19, verse 8. So I'll just read. Then Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, said... Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. And Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. 
And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outrun the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man, comes with good news. And Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told, Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, You've today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you. And hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth till now. And the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. 
So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like David's here where you are waiting for news so desperately and it's, it's no good hearing bits of information that pertain to it because what you really want to know is the bit of information they're not telling you. There's some piece of information that's the only thing you really care about. It doesn't matter how well this guy played or this guy played, what was the score? It doesn't matter how many votes came in for this party, who's won the election. We wait for the piece of information that particularly concerns us at a certain point. And David is, is without the advantage that we have, where we can know things instantly, we can get quick information just by putting a hand in our pocket and doing this. Just suddenly, all the information, it seems, is available in seconds. David has to go through this grueling process of waiting, waiting between the outer gate and the inner gate of the city wall at Machanaim. He's, he's kind of stuck between two walls. It's kind of symbolic of his, of his lingering position, kind of desperately longing to be put out of his misery, waiting for the watchman to declare, the news is come. There's news. It's interesting. It's actually a theme in the Bible, this concept of the deliverance of news, the delivery of news. There's the, the verses that might be familiar to you in Isaiah, uh, where it speaks about in, in, in those, those phrases that we sometimes sing in one or two of our songs in Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And that idea of, of a herald, basically a kind of a town crier in the ancient Middle East, you know, someone who shows up with the news, basically doing what Twitter or what, what your news feed would do these days, turning up at the city and declaring the outcome of a battle on which the, the destiny of everybody in the city, their lives depended that idea, you can trace it through the Bible. In fact, the New Testament picks it out of Isaiah and says that's really what Christians are called to do. We're called to declare the good news, the good news of a victory that God's Son accomplished in his great battle against sin and against death and against hell and against guilt and against shame and against the power of the law to accuse, against sickness and against the curse that comes into the world through sin of injustice and everything that's bad, God has, through his son's death and resurrection, achieved the greatest victory of all time. And what the church is called to do is play the part of the herald, going into the world saying good news. How beautiful upon the mountains, as Isaiah puts it, are the feet of those who are running, running, just like in our story here, Achimaz and the Cushite. They're running. They want to be the ones to say it. I want to tell the city, we won. This is the best moment. For years, we've needed a victory like this. And we really needed a victory because if Absalom was set to hunt us down, we would have all been in trouble. And we won. This is such a moment of victory, a success, a, a great win, a great deliverance. God has rescued his people. And yet David's way of handling the news is so different than the rest of the city. Why? Well, because David, that's not the main thing. The main thing is not, well, we won or we lost. No, the main thing was his son, Absalom. 
That's why he lost his dear son. He lost his child. Maybe there's nothing more grievous than, than such a loss. David mourns, famously mourns. In fact, he, he mourns in a way that shows a kind of profound pathos. It's a really moving verse, isn't it? Absalom, my son, my son. It's especially moving considering how simple it is. He only uses about three or four words. He just keeps repeating and babbling them like a reduced baby. He's kind of, he's kind of knocked back by his grief to childhood. This is the same man that when Jonathan, his best friend, died at the beginning of 2 Samuel, he wrote this rhapsodic psalm that we still quote, how the mighty have fallen and your glory lies on your heights, O Israel. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. It's, it's kind of colourful and, and resplendent. It's a magnificent piece of literature. He crafted it. He, was, he, he used all his grief and his energy of emotion to, to express himself with such clarity of language. And here, he's just reduced to a wreck. He can't even think of other words to say. Just, absolute, my son, my son. Grief sometimes cauterizes people. It makes them feel reduced to a shell. Maybe you've seen the, the Shakespeare play King Lear. Maybe you were tortured by it at school. And we sometimes confront Shakespeare as, as uh, 12 or 13-year-olds with resentment. But when you actually watch it for yourself, maybe at a later stage in life, you, you, you get to see something of what humanity understands about grief. There's a, there's a play, King Lear, where this, this uh, very powerful monarch, just like David, he's, he's reduced in the final breathtakingly heartbreaking scene that's holding up his daughter. She's been hanged. And he, he doesn't even say words. He just says, howl, howl, howl. Such a strange phrase. It sounds a bit archaic and old English. But I think the whole point is that people's sorrow can reduce them to not even being able to talk properly. And the Bible understands that. The Bible talks in these terms to help us to feel there's people here who've gone through the pain we've gone through. And they, they understand, perhaps even particularly, the kind of cruelty of having to be the person who can't celebrate when everybody else wants to. Everyone else is, is happy. We won. I wonder how often that's happened through histories of war and battle, that a victory is tainted with sorrow for a widow or an orphan. I didn't win. I lost everything. And that's, that's, that's how he feels. There's a film that you might have seen called Master and Commander. It's a, it's a film taken from a series of books about the, 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 the Nelson's fleet against Napoleon a couple hundred years ago. There's a bit where a, a sailor is lost at sea. He's, he's, he's fallen because the master's cracked and he's being held to the ship only by the broken mast and the ropes that are holding the, the, the mast to the boat. But because of the mast being cracked and out there in the middle of a terrible storm, it looks like the boat is going to go down with the broken mast because the rigging is pulling it, pulling it down. And the captain, Jack Aubrey, has to decide what to do. And not many of the crew realize that this man that's out there trapped in the rigging 
is going to lose his life if they cut the mast free, if they chop through the rigging, if they chop through these ropes and let that broken mast go away. The ship will be saved, but a man will be lost out in the open sea. And the whole crew are kind of longing, let's break the ropes, let's break the ropes. And there's this moment where, where the ship, as the ropes are broken, the ship comes back to its vertical position and it's safe in the storm. And there's this huge cheer comes up from the whole crew. It's very spontaneous, this eruption of, yes, we're saved. And you look at the face of the captain and he knows at what cost they were saved. He sees and hears the cries of this poor sailor drifting out into open sea, never to be seen again by his wife and family, whoever's left behind. And sometimes in, in life, the success or the, the, the safety of people is, is, is only possible through something tragic, it seems. Something horrible happens and it's good news for some. But that's a situation where a, presumably a young sailor boy who was relatively innocent, lost his life effectively by accident. In this story, it's not quite the same because you've got the added factor of justice. I mean, Absalom is not an innocent sailor boy. Absalom turned his hand against the king. Absalom was a rebel. I'm not just a teenage rebel, not just a, not trivially. He raised an army against his father. He was, a, a, he was guilty of patricide. He wanted his father dead, and he wanted the kingdom to be his. He was an antichrist. He was turning against God's chosen anointed. He was a deeply wicked man. And Joab, Joab understood one thing. He understood this man deserves to die. The things that he's done. He was a murderer. He was brutal. He was violent. He was ruthless. And he was set to do more cruelties if he became king without David holding him back. Joab got this. Joab understood that much. Whatever else we say about Joab, there's a lot to say. He got this much and he had Absalom killed. You could say, well, ultimately, whatever we say about capital punishment, in the context of the time, this man, he needed to be killed. In this war situation, that was the only way through for the nation. Joab, you could say, well, he did the right thing. He, he did justice. And we have to pause and reflect we sometimes get this a little wrong. We forget about justice in our culture, which, which, which kind of sometimes wants to reduce goodness to kind of trivial, shallow versions of forgiveness, where, well, we just believe in forgiveness and love. And in a kind of disnified way, we, we reduce what this book teaches to, well, let's just let everybody off. Let's just let everybody go free. But the thing is, friends, anyone who's really suffered injustice, anyone who's really gone through... Some of the worst war crimes, for example, who've seen things that, 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 that traumatised them and left them kind of reduced as people, they, they will not be quite so happy just to see it trivially. Oh, let's just let the guy go. Let's just, just be lovely, nice, you know, in a kind of a trivial, kind of shallow, skin-deep kind of way. It's not good enough. No, there's such a thing as justice. Justice must be done. When apartheid finished in South Africa, uh, some of the, the, the church people and the government started to set up the truth and reconciliation process. And the whole idea was that those who were involved in the kind of apparatus of apartheid with all of its wickedness would be brought before tribunals and made to look in the eye the things they'd done and talk about them openly and face the fact that they'd done evil things. 
And there was something very noble about that. It may not have always been done as well as they'd hoped. It was an ideal they perhaps couldn't keep to, but the, the point was excellent. So we, we're not going to sweep stuff under the rug here. If there were wicked things that need to be faced for the sake of justice in our nation, we can't lie about them. We've got to deal with justice. And, and this is the problem of longing for justice. Everybody wants justice in the end. We do want fairness. We do want those who deserve to be paid. To, ultimately, when we feel the impact of what they've done, we, we, we want them to be paid for it. We want something to be done. We want justice to, to, to be properly followed through on, right? Problem is, when justice properly gets followed through on, we might find that it massively affects each of us individually more than we thought it would. We want justice done. We want an end to this rebellion. <gasps> but spare my son. I don't want my son to get hurt. And, and we're suddenly conflicted. We didn't realize it was going to be like that. We like the idea of justice, but oh man, it's going to hurt. And then you think about it, if you go even more deeply down to the human heart, you think, well, it's not just that the wicked people are amongst us. It's more serious still. The wicked people are within us. If injustice is going to be dealt with, it's going to have to be dealt with in here, right? Right? If we don't see that, we're just lying to ourselves. We've missed the whole point, certainly the whole point of this book and the whole point of life. We should see clearly Whatever's been done to us, we have also done it to others. Maybe in subtler, more British or gentlemanly ways, but we've done it. If we've not done it with our hands, we've done it with our words. If we've not done it with our words, we've done it with our thoughts. Yeah, there's injustice in here too. So it's no good saying, well, let's just pull up the weeds of injustice. You pull up the weeds of injustice, you'll pull up a few flowers as well. They're all too deeply, tightly connected together in the heart of every person. We kind of imagine that we can kind of surgically sterilize injustice, deal with it somewhere out there in a different place that nice suburban people don't have to confront. It's not going to happen. No, it, the problem is that the wickedness is within each of us. If God, God, the God of the Bible, is going to deal with that, my friend, he's going to have to deal with you. He'll have to deal with each one of us. So how is he going to do it? How is he going to deal with injustice when each of us feels the pain like David? <gasps> spare my son or even spare me. You've got to face the reality, surely, of how deep the poison has gone. It's interesting to me that in this story, the Bible doesn't pick a side. You've got David with his grief and you've got Joab with his frustration. Joab's saying, what are you doing feeling so sorry for yourself? What are you doing? The nation needs you to be king now. Justice was done. Let's move on. You think, well, the Bible's going to be surely picking David's side because Joab was, was, Joab was being a little bit overly clinical here. Not necessarily. The Bible doesn't really point, paint Joab as an evil person in this story. Neither does it paint David as one. They're both the same. They're both, in a sense, they're both right. They're both feeling it. They're both feeling the need for justice and the terrible heartbreak of justice. They're both adding up together to that. And why is that? Why have you got a David and a Joab in the same story? Why does the Bible present them as equally valid in their expression? Because within the heart of God, you get both. It's what God's like. God who is 
passionate for justice in a way we couldn't understand. All of our care about justice is a dim, dim reflection, a faint echo of his furnace of passion for justice. But at the same time, a God who's so giving, so generous, so compassionate, so filled with inexpressible love for the unjust, for the ungodly, as Romans chapter 4 puts it. The one who doesn't deserve anything good. God is filled with compassion. So this conflict isn't just between David and Joab. It's not just between David and the Cushite messenger. It's between God and God, you could almost say. It's there in God, this conflict. You see it sometimes in in powerful passages like in Hosea chapter 11. You see God speaking for himself. He says to, to his rebellious people later on in Israel's story, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Paul Paul says in Romans chapter 11, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness and the severity. They're both in there. These are both clearly shown in the heart of God. They're explained throughout the whole of Scripture. God is kind and severe. We tend in our culture probably to emphasize the one over the other, right? And you probably know which one it's going to be. We're quite big on the kindness of God. We forget the severity, the righteous severity, the just severity of God against sin, against injustice, against wickedness, against evil. And how God deals with us knowing both of these things. This is huge for us in terms of our understanding of God and what God is like. Let me talk a little bit before we finish about how this affects us practically. Because this this will help you understand the God of the Bible, at least. Understand what we see in him and what life is like if you follow him. First thing to say is we, we should expect what I'm going to call mortification. We should expect some pain in it. Now, big Fat, scary word, mortification. All it means is putting sin to death. That's what it means. It means putting stuff to death that's bad. So so we see it in our hearts. We see the sin, the injustice, the evil. God sees it way more clearly. We see it in black and white. He sees it in 3D, 4D, full color. He, He sees it really strong. What does he do about it? He wants it gone. He doesn't like it. He's against it. He's for us. He's against our sin. He will put it to death. Why should we expect that process to always be comfortable? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you were here. This this is a big thing for us to come to terms with, and so it's worth repeating often. Why should we expect the process of mortification to be comfortable always? Why should we always imagine that when God deals with the sin in our lives, it will be plain sailing, it will be pleasant. We shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be shocked. We should expect instead to go through some pain. When we do what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, I'll read to you the way he describes 
the way we do this in the Christian life. He says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. By the way, it doesn't mean passion as in living passionately. Everyone's, you know, God's passionate. Passion is good. He's talking about when the passion of sin controls us. That's what he means. It's like lack of self-control. He's saying, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. It doesn't belong anymore. It's not you anymore. Put it to death. Put it to death. Kill it off. Kill it off. Don't entertain it. Don't play with it. Don't hang out with it. You know, I watched the, 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 the football last night. Even after such a massive competition with so much emotion, serious emotion, if you watched the match, it was a phenomenal football game. At the end of it, what happens? The players, you know, handshakes. Handshakes is just the beginning of it. Big hugs. Wiping each other's tears away. It's fascinating. You used to trade shirts in the old days. It's the same idea. It's like, oh, in the end, we're just friends. Do not be like that with sin. Wickedness in your heart. Don't treat it like that. This is not a football match. This is a battleground. In the middle of a battle, or even at the end of a battle, they don't trade shirts. They don't kiss and cuddle. You do that, you'll get an arrow through the neck. There's no time for that. We put it to death and we get out quick. That's the atmosphere of the world. If there's stuff in me that needs going, it needs to go. It needs to be put to death. It needs, it needs to be killed off properly. And this is, this is the atmosphere of Scripture because, friends, listen, please, because the stakes are so high. John Owen, the preacher from a long time ago, used to say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's that serious. It, it's not your friend. It will kill you. It will kill you. It will take you down. You have a choice. You have an option to entertain it, let it live, or to put it to death. But don't expect that death to be a pleasant one. This is why David's story here is, is kind of instructive, because he's, he's, he's having to face the reality that the only way forward for Israel, the only solution to the wickedness, the injustice, the rebellion, the only way forward, the only way to being safe and delivered as a nation was for a death, such a death, such a painful wrenching for David. It would have easily been seen to him, like Joab says, as, as a bad thing, as if, as if the whole nation has lost. And Joab's saying, no, we haven't lost. We've won because of this. David, I know you're the king, but you need to hear this from your top general. We needed this. This had to die. It had to die. I know how treasured. He was, I know, but there was no way forward without a death. It had to go. What are the things, friends, brothers and sisters who love Jesus Christ, what are the things in your life that you nurse and entertain, the things that you treat as your dear friends or even just your common acquaintances when in the end they've got all the power of capsizing the ship and taking you down in the storm? What are the things you need to cut yourself free from? There's a reason Jesus talked like this. You remember, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. It's better to enter life without a hand, without an eye, than to carry all these things that you've got into eternal destruction. This is, this is the warning he brings to his to, to his people. He's saying, look, there's a real danger of being brought down at least into serious destruction in this life. 
However secure we are eternally, maybe our nonchalance will suggest that we aren't secure eternally because we've got a false faith. We think, well, sin's just my friend. I don't know if Jesus is your friend then. If sin is just your friend, if you thought about who Jesus is to you, if you fear God, you'll hate evil. You, will, you just hate it. Find a hatred will be somewhere in your soul. <laughs> and it will express itself sometimes in things that look violent. You think I'm being over the top? I'm being like Jesus. That's what he said. He said, you can't follow me unless you learn to hate your father and mother. What? You ever read those verses? They're in the Bible. Some of you got red letter Bibles. They're in the red letter bits. Jesus said them. Unless you hate your father and mother. What is he saying? What's he saying? Break the fifth commandment? I don't think so. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus honoured his father and mother very well. He's saying the things that you should rightly treasure, you should still not treasure above your God. You can't have the kingdom unless you're prepared to let other things die. In the end, this must be, it must dominate you. It must win you to that point of radical commitment. Because why? God is radical against injustice. God is flamingly radical against it. He hates sin. He hates it. He will have it put out. He will. We need to catch up with him. Say, oh, God, help me to treasure the right things. And help me to stop treasuring things that don't matter. The things that matter but don't matter in comparison to your kingdom. Jesus made these comments knowing it would be painful. Let me just read you a section from a story. Some of you might remember this book. You may have come across it before, The Great Divorce. Another Lewis quote. This is, this is a powerful experience demonstration of the same idea. He's talking about, in this imaginative story, some people who travel from hell to heaven. It's a bizarre book. And it's, worth, it's fascinating. It's just imaginative. But what he's trying to imagine is what it is like for people who've not been set free from sin to be in a place where sin has to go. It has to go. And he describes it like this in one case. A mighty angel approached the man, this is a man who's got this kind of growth on his shoulder because he's a, he's, his, his injustice, his wickedness that we've been talking about is basically expressed through literally in this imaginative story, a lizard that's a growth out of his shoulder. It's growing out of him. See, sin distorts you. It makes you kind of ugly, maybe on the inside rather than the outside, but it makes you ugly. And this is showing what we become on the inside if we don't get rid of sin. A mighty angel approached the man and said, would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said I wouldn't hurt you. 
I said I wouldn't kill you. Suddenly, the lizard began chattering loudly. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over, bellowed the ghost, but ending whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. Then I saw unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the ghost materialized into a man, not much smaller than the angel. At the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Suddenly, I stared back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I've ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. The man, now free from his torment, climbed upon the stallion that had been his sin and rode into the glowing sunrise towards the saviour. Sometimes imaginative pictures help us to understand what God is doing in our lives, don't they? We can go through things that seem so extreme and so painful. God might deprive us of things that we treasure. God might say, well, you can't have that. That thing that you see as so important that everything else has to just go to the wall. You say, I'll have that. I'll take that. Have I your permission? Now, the Bible doesn't just talk about us doing this once or twice. It talks about us doing this daily. Paul says, I die daily. Go on putting sin to death. And it means for us, the Christian life, it would be a, a, a common, a, a frequent experience of just having to say, God, I trust you, and I'll put to death that sin in me which is actually destroying me. But here's the thing, and let me finish with these points. We might feel that we're doing something unthinkable, even heroic, in our mortification of the sins. You know, I'm doing so well, I'm putting sin to death. I'm really, really doing well. I'm I'm kind of earning your respect, God, right? Because I'm, I'm putting stuff to death. Look, I've, I've gone through some pain even. I've had to say sorry to people. I've, I've stopped doing these things that I had a bad habit with and I've given this money away or I've, I've done all these things. And we could imagine perhaps that we're the hero of the story. But actually, that's short-lived in the end. That's not very powerful. We'll, we'll, that sort of mortification won't last anyway. The only mortification that works is that which has its roots in what Jesus himself uniquely did. So the second and last point really I want to make is that All of our uh, victories, all of our deaths, if you like, all of our putting sin to death, they point to a darker agony and a fuller victory. See, David has his time waiting for news about his son. But you've got to understand that the whole story the Bible teaches is of a father giving his son, giving him completely. There was a time in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross where Jesus, he had to wait on the Father's will. And there was this moment of recognition. Your will, not mine, be, be done. I, I, I trust you. I will follow you. Jesus, he, he waited for news. He, in a sense, was given the worst news. 
David's terrible, terrible moment of grief and mourning and loss and sorrow and losing the thing that seemed so special to him, even though it was God's deliverance for the nation, is really a pre-shadowing of, of God giving of his son to death on the cross. Why? So that, well, so that we could be truly delivered and rescued through his death, through his agony on the cross. Sometimes the battle with sin will, will feel agonizing. Sometimes God will take things from our lives. It will feel like an agony. We must always remember it's almost a privilege to share in the far greater agony that he went through. You know, some of us have got kids, or even if you, you can remember your parents and times when your parents let you help them with a certain task. They let you do some stuff, maybe some DIY or some shopping or whatever. You know, you're helping in the garden. And you like to give your kids the impression that they're doing all the work. What, what would I do if you weren't here doing all this work? Quite often, you know, when they're turning their back, you're actually mending all the work they've done. You're fixing all the mistakes they've made. God's like that with us. He says, okay, you, you, you need to fight against sin. Come on, let's, let's see you fight. Let's see you win this battle. Let's see you break this habit. We get to the point where we feel like we're doing really well. You know, I've broken some bad behaviors. I've changed in my attitudes. I'm becoming so much kinder, so much quicker to forgive. I'm so pleased. I'm doing so well. God's such a good father. He honors us. He rewards us. He doesn't take away from us. But let us never forget that the suffering we go through in the mortification of sin, it only points to a truly agonizing, dark night in which Jesus really did the heavy load. Jesus did the real work, right? Jesus took our sin on himself. He did what only he could do. He did what David couldn't do. Do you notice David's language? As he gets to the end of this grief and the way he talks about it, in, in, in uh, verse 33 again, he says, Oh, my son, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David, as king, cannot suffer and die Absalom's death. He can't. Why? Because David is complicit. David is also a sinner. David is tainted. David doesn't have the capacity. He's not God. He's not righteous. He's not innocent. There's only one man who is God, who is so perfect and so mighty and so innocent that he could come into the world and not wish that he could suffer someone else's death, but actually suffer someone else's death. In fact, suffer the death that we all deserve. So, so it means the story changes for you and me. It means that whereas I've spent a lot of this sermon saying, get ready for a little bit of pain in your fight against sin, the context of it, never forget this, the context of all of our passionate, traveling hard behind Jesus, following him, putting sin to death, suffering in some of that, the context of it is that he has secured our rescue, our forgiveness forever and ever. So that when Jesus told the story of a father and a son, and a son basically doing what Absalom did to David, cursing him, saying, I wish you were dead, squandering his money, living in squalor. When he comes back to the father, it's a shocking story when you think about it. The father embraces him. The father receives him. The father reinstates him. My son has returned. It's got a happy ending. It's got a happy ending. Why is that? Is it because God changed his mind between the pages of the Old Testament and the New? 
God said, well, Absalom had to die, but we'll check. I don't like that ending. We'll have a new ending. Where there's the, you know, like the box sets, you know, where we do that with movies, you know, happy ending choice. Is that what Jesus came to bring? No, no, no. There's no, there's no sweeping under the rug. Someone had to pay for this ending. And Jesus paid. Jesus paid. So that whoever you are today, you can find your way back to God. Even if you're Absalom, even if you think, well, I've, I've hated God, I've turned away from God, I've been, maybe you're aware of things you've done to your parents or your, your kids or your husband or wife or your friends. Maybe you're deeply aware of sins in your life that are against God. God's, God's thundering message to you today. Welcome home. Come home. You don't have to hang on a tree. You don't have to dangle between heaven and hell. Receive the stabbings of the law, the stabbings of accusation. You can instead come to my table. Receive, receive my gifts. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for this grace. We thank you for the grace in which we stand. We do want to stand, Lord. We do want to learn to stand in the grace of God. And we want by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Lord, not by the law, not by sheer grit, by clenching of teeth, but by the Spirit, knowing the grace of God, being prepared to die daily. It's, it's fine. It's fine. I, I can suffer in the fight against sin because someone suffered far more. And I know in the end all I'm doing is storing up a crown forever and ever. And I pray help. I pray for each. I pray for the one in this room who's having the deepest struggle at the moment with, with some, some loss, some fight against sin, some area where you're really pushing them to trust you in the battle. I pray strengthen them right now by your grace. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.